The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Awesome. Well, we are uh, continuing our series today. We're in week two of a series we're doing called The Good Life. Uh, and, and we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and the reason we're calling this series The Good Life is because, in a sense, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, is it's, is it's pointing us towards a life of wisdom. What does it look like to navigate all of life well? That's what Ecclesiastes is driving towards. Uh, and I recently I was, I was reading a book uh, about Ecclesiastes, and, and it gave me a really, I think, helpful definition of, of a way to frame this book. So I want to share it with you. I'll have it up on the screen. It says this, Ecclesiastes is an argument that existential dependence on a gracious creator God, not only abstract belief, is a precondition for an unshakable, purposeful life. All right, so, so that's the idea of Ecclesiastes, to, to strip away everything else from us that we would maybe be dependent on, that we would maybe be tempted to find meaning in. He strips all of that away so that we don't just have an intellectual assent to God, but that we actually have a life in which we're fully dependent upon him. And he says, that's where you're going to find meaning. That's where you're going to find purpose. And so in order to get us there, the author of Ecclesiastes just begins to start stripping away these things that we might find meaning in. And so in chapter 1, he says, hey, if you want to find meaning in your life through wisdom, through knowledge, through doing whatever you can to learning as much about this world as possible, he says, you can do that, but he says, ultimately, that's going to fail you. That's not going to be enough. And then in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, uh, he gets into pleasure. He says, hey, you want to be a hedonist? You want to just satisfy whatever you know, carnal appetite you have? You go for it, buddy. You just pursue pleasure however you want. Pursue comfort however you want. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be enough for you. And then as we get to the end of chapter 2, he starts to pick apart a third thing that we might be tempted to find meaning in. And that's work. Work. And that's what we're going to dig into today. We're talking about work. How do we have meaningful work? How do we have meaningful work? And that's an important question to ask because, I don't know if you know it, you, you spend a lot of time at work, right? Like most of you, most of your time is spent at work. And so how do we have meaningful work? Well, what we're going to see in our text is three truths that will help us answer that question. All right, so the first truth we're going to see is we're going to see the problems we have with work. We'll see our problems with work. We're going to see God's plan for work. And then we're going to see a new story for our work. Our problems with work, God's plan for our work, a new story for work. All right, so let's get going. Our problems. Uh, look with me at verses 18 through 21. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. All right, so the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's right here. He calls himself uh, the philosopher or the preacher. The, the Hebrew word for it is koheleth, uh, which is a really fun word, so I'll just be using it a bunch today. Uh, so so the, uh, the koheleth, uh, he's reflecting on his life, and he's, he's looking at his work, and he says, I hate all of my work. I hate my work. Why? Why does he hate it? Well, to summarize those verses pretty quickly, he says he hates it because you can't take a U-Haul into heaven, right? That's what he says. He's saying, no matter what I accomplish in my work, 
No matter what I do, no matter how much great work I do, I end up leaving it all behind for someone else. And who knows what they're going to do with it. And maybe they do fine with it, but the next guy messes it up. The next gal messes it up. All the work I'm doing, it could be for nothing. And this makes sense, right? You get that. But it may hit you a little differently depending upon your generation. Okay, so I think of my, my grandparents' generation uh, who you know, survived a world war, survived the Great Depression. And so for them, when they think of work, man, they're happy to have any work, right? Because for them, that was, that was their opportunity to provide for their family. Any work they could get to provide for their family is a good thing. And so I think of my grandma. She is like the hardest working person I know. And I know some hardworking people. She's number one. You can't beat her. I guarantee it. Uh, she, she grew up, or not grew up, she, she lived as a, as a farmer's wife. My, my grandfather ran a dairy farm in northern Wisconsin. And, uh, and so she grew up and, and poured herself into that, that farm and, and working alongside her husband and raising my, my dad and his siblings up. And then when my grandpa died and they sold the farm, she and my aunt started a catering business. And, and so she catered full-time, and I kid you not, she did not retire from full-time catering until she was 90 years old. Like, crazy. Like, couldn't lift her arms, and my aunt's like, you just got to quit, Mom. She's like, no, I must keep going. Like, that's just how she is. Like, just grinding away. And so she retires when she's 90. Two years into her retirement, the guy she had married later in life ended up taking her for everything she was worth and then took off and left her. And so now, my grandma lives in a room in my aunt's house instead of on her beautiful property that she worked so hard for. And so Ecclesiastes, Koheleth, the, the, the preacher says, see, this is a problem. Nothing lasts. You work so hard for something and it can just be gone in an instant. Now my generation, us young bucks, our temptation is to look at, at my grandma, look at that generation and say, see, that's why you shouldn't work just for money. You're just working for money, financial gain. It's not good enough. You've got to work to make a difference. That's why you want to work. You want to make a difference in the world. Do something that matters. That's what it's about. There's a problem with that too. There's a problem with that too. Uh, so I look at myself. And I worked really hard to start this church. I worked really hard to do something that matters. But here's the thing. One day... One of two things is going to happen here. Either I'm going to leave and some dumb kid from seminary is going to come here and drive this thing into the ground. <laughs> right? Or I end up staying here till either retire or die or something like that. And this church either dies under my leadership, entirely possible, um, or... <laughs> Or someone else comes in after me and maybe it dies under them. Like churches die, it happens. And so, so I'm left asking, like, like, why bother? Why bother doing this? See, regardless of what generation you're in, the, the problem with work that's brought up here in Ecclesiastes rings true. For those of you that are teachers, it's got to cross your mind sometimes. Like, is all the work that I'm doing pouring into these kids, is it really going to help some of them out? Is it really going to make that much of a difference? I don't know. Right? Or those of you that are in the high turnover world of the tech industry, is the thought like, how much should I give of myself to this company when I could be gone tomorrow? Or those of you that are in the medical field, I mean, doesn't it cross your mind that you're just delaying the inevitable? Right? It's dark. I know. I know. It's dark. That's what he's saying. The list could go on. And so what this text does is it begs the question. It says, hey, beyond mere survival, 
To what end are we working? Why do we have jobs? Why do we do these things beyond mere survival? If it's just going to fall apart in the end, why bother? Now, for some of you, you hear me say all this, and you're like, Gabe, I'm just not with you. All right, like, I'm not having an existential crisis about my work not mattering in the end. It's just not something you're dealing with. Fine, there's another problem with our work, too. And uh, Koheleth brings it up to us. Look with me at verses 22 to 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. All right, so Koheleth says, hey, let's say you got no problem with your work not amounting to much in the end. That's fine. No problem. But he says, look at your life right now. He says, if you look at your life right now, you're sweating about it. You're stressing out about it. You're free. You can't even sleep at night. Your heart's not resting. It's eating you up. You're constantly thinking about it. And you're doing that either because, A, you don't like your work, or B, because your identity is so caught up in your work that everything depends on your performance. And knowing many of you, this is probably where you sit. And I sit here too. Right? Like, this is a major problem with work in our culture. It is all consuming. And so, when that's the case, the highs can be really, really high, but the lows can be really, really low. And what happens in a culture where our identity is linked with our work is it's alienating. It's alienating. See, it alienates us from ourselves, it alienates us from our family. It alienates us from genuine relationships, and it can even alienate us from God. So in the, the play uh, Amadeus, there's a, a character named Antonio Salieri. Real quick, anyone see the play Amadeus? All right, good. Oh, good. You guys are much classier than 930. <laughs> bunch, bunch of hillbillies. So anyways, they, they were not familiar. Um, so at any rate, uh, there's, there's this character uh, Antonio Salieri, who's, who's a, a composer, musical composer, and, uh, and he pours himself into his work and is really dedicated to what he's doing, writing new pieces of music, really cares about it. But at the end of the day, uh, his talent is, is modest. Like, he's pretty good at it, but he's just kind of modest. No matter how hard he works, he's modest. And so then he comes across Mozart, his prodigy. He starts working alongside Mozart and seeing this crazy, beautiful music that Mozart's putting together. And Salieri says, he, he's a Christian, and he says, God, I, I'm seeing what this guy's doing. Would you please bless me that way? God, I want my work to matter that much. God, would you just give me that creative ability? Would you just enlighten me in such a way that I'd write beautiful music? I want to do that. But alas, Salieri isn't able to, and his work just stays modest. And so there's this point in the play where Salieri is talking to God, and he says this to him. From now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you will not enter me with all my need for you, because you scorn my attempts, you are unjust, unfair, unkind. And then as the story goes on, Salieri turns bitter against God and seeks to destroy Mozart. Now, I don't think any of us here are going to go to the extremes that Salieri does. But you see how when work is linked with your sense of self-worth, when work is, is just your entire identity, we start looking at others. And we say, well, how about them? How come it's them and not me? Or we look at ourselves and we say, why aren't I good enough? What am I missing here? Or we look at our family and we say, why are you guys holding me back? I could be doing these things, but I'm stuck dragging you with me. Or we look at God and we say, why did you create me this way? Why did you give me this life? 
See, when work and identity become the same thing, we end up alienating ourselves. And so what the writer of Ecclesiastes is helping us see is these two problems with work is that it can be pointless and it can be alienating. And so those are the problems with work. But what's God's plan for? What's it supposed to be? How's it supposed to work? Uh, Well, if you look with me at verses 24 to 25, it says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, last week I told you, hey, if you read Ecclesiastes along with this series, if you read along with this book with us, uh, you're going to be very frustrated by it. And this is an example of that sort of frustration. Because I don't know if you caught it, we just talked about the five verses before this one. The, the author says, hey, work is meaningless. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Burn it all to the ground. And then he says, there's nothing better for a person to do than enjoy their work. What's the deal with that, right? He's talking out of two sides of his mouth here. What's going on? What is it? He's saying, yes, there are problems with work. There just are. But God's plan originally is for us to find joy in our work. That just like food and drink are a gift from God to be received and to be celebrated, he says, your work is is a gift from God to be received and to be celebrated. And we're made to work. See, and we see this in in the beginning of Scripture, in the creation story in Genesis. Uh, God creates everything, chapter 1, and he says that it's good. So he creates everything good. And then we get to chapter 2, and and God pulls Adam aside, and he gives him what what theologians call the cultural mandate. This is what he says, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And so God takes Adam aside and he says, hey, this is the good world I've created. These are the good things I've created. Now I'm putting you in charge of it. Now grab hold of it. Do something with it. And the Hebrew word for work there is the word avad. And avad, it means to work, but it has these sort of like connotations of of to till or to cultivate, to take something that's there and move it forward. And so God says to Adam, hey, I've created all these things out of nothing. Now I want you to take what I've created and do something with it. Move things forward. And I bring all that up to point something out. Like we're created to work. Like this is pre-fall. This is pre-us falling into sin and everything, you know, falling apart. We're made to work. It's part of God's good creation. We're supposed to be cultivators of creation as we image the creator. And so work is a part of God's good creation. Now, there's nearly endless implications of that truth, okay? And I was thinking through, like, when I was prepping the sermon, I was like, oh, I'll do a big, long list. And I was like, people fall asleep. Okay, so I'm just going to do one thing, all right? We're just going gonna to draw out one implication this morning uh, from that, and that's this. Since work is a part of God's good creation, it means that all work is good work. All work is God's work. I mean, with the exception of, like, slinging dope on the corner. Like, that does not count, okay? But, but good work is God's work, all right? And so all work matters to God. Your work matters to God. And I say that because there is a temptation in the church to take ministry professionals like myself and put us up on a pedestal 
and say, hey, those are the people that God's working through. Those are the people that God's doing stuff in this world through. And so the only thing I can do is work really hard at my job and give them my money. I'll still take your money, but otherwise that's nonsense, okay? It's nonsense. All work is God's work. God calls all of us to the various areas we are. We call this the doctrine of vocation. Vocation. And I go into that in much greater detail. We did a series last summer called Vocatio. So if you want to get on our podcast, you can dig into that if you would like to. But the bottom line is this, is through your vocation, through where God is working right now, he's using you to take care of his creation. He's using you to cultivate his good creation. So I think of it like this. When we were uh, getting Axley Ander up and running, um, I had a meeting with, with our financial guy here early on. And, and he and I sat down, and, and he put together a bunch of like really nice spreadsheets for me with all our numbers on and all the financials so that I could get it, which terrible at numbers. So I just made it nice and simple, and it was awesome. And, and I just said, hey, man, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you doing that. And he said to me, he said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy to. He said, it's nice to actually be able to use my financial knowledge for something that matters as opposed to just crunching numbers for my company. And I turned and I said to him, bro, because that's how I talk in this story. I said, bro, what you do every day matters. Like, do you think the businesses that you do work with are happy that you do it with integrity and with honesty? Do you think your employers are happy that, that you work hard and are diligent and are service-minded? Do you think your kids are happy that they have a roof over their heads and food to eat? Dude, what you do every day matters. In his book, God at Work, Gene Veith puts it like this. God works through people in their ordinary stations of life to which he has called them to care for his creation. In this way, he cares for everyone, Christian and non-Christian, whom he has given life. See, this is why your work matters to God. Because through it, it's how he takes care of his creation. You're the means through which he provides for others. Martin Luther used to say that, that we're the masks of God. That he works through us to do his work in creation. So God's in your work, and that should shape how you do your work Monday through Friday. I think of it like this. Uh, so, so God, he can heal however he wants, right? God can heal miraculously. But usually, he heals through doctors and nurses and physical therapists and biomedical engineers. And God teaches kids through teachers. And he raises kids through loving parents. And he builds things through architects and engineers and construction workers and contractors. And he creates new works of beauty through musicians and artists, filmmakers. And God upholds justice and protects the vulnerable through the work of the police and other public servants. And God develops technology and software through giant nerds. <laughs> if you don't laugh loud, it just sounds mean. Okay. And God provides new jobs, and he, but we love you, Andy. Um, and he provides uh, new jobs and work for people in need through those who take the risk of being entrepreneurs. See, whatever it is you do, your work matters to God because through you, he's taking care of his creation. And that's all well and good. And someone may say, okay, Gabe, that's cool. I get what you're saying. But honestly, I'm just not feeling it. Like, 
It's all well and good, but okay, work matters to God, but, but, but there's got to be something else. Ah, there is. Not only does God have a plan for work, but God invites us now into a new story to live into for our work. That's not just his original creative plan, it's that, and then we're invited into a new story. Look with me at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Uh, Think about how significant this text is and how we answer that question, how do we have meaningful work? It says, for the one who pleases him, so the one who pleases God, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy in his work. But for the sinner, that is the one who doesn't please God, he's just going to be in the business of gathering and collecting. That work for the one who doesn't please God is just going to be about going in and going out, just doing the job day in, day out. There's not fulfillment. There's not joy. It's just going to be the daily grind. And so then the question comes, like, what does it mean to be the one who pleases God? Well, to answer that question, we need to recognize something. And that's this. We all live our lives according to a story. Every single person lives their life according to a story. There's different stories for different people. But there's a, there's a narrative at work subconsciously in the back of your head that you live your life according to. And all stories follow a similar pattern. I'll have the outline up here. It says this. Uh, that first part of the pattern is that there's a way things are supposed to be. That there's a problem with the way things are and that there's a solution and way to real, realize that problem. Those kind of those narratives that we all sort of live into. And so for the Christian, for those of us who follow Jesus, we'd say, yeah, there's a way things are supposed to be, that there's a, a good creator God who created this world and created us to live into it in a certain way and in a particular way. We're designed to live uh, towards him and in love towards one another. But we'd say that there's a problem with the way things are, right? And we call that sin. That, that there's some sort of problem, there's a, a brokenness that we don't love other people the way we're supposed to. We don't love God the way we're supposed to. That sin has entered in. And the problem of sin, we'd say, is not even just making a few moral errors. It's not just some character flaws. But it's actually a condition at the heart of humanity that has a ripple effect into all of creation. And that there's nothing we can do to fix it. There's nothing we can do to make it right. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves pleased before God, for God to be pleased with us, verse 26, to look at us that way. But God, in his mercy, provides a solution. His only son, Jesus Christ. And when we think about Jesus, I think about God sending him down for us. And when Jesus comes on this earth, He's not some philosopher king. He's not some untouchable holy man. But what was Jesus' occupation before he started his ministry? He was a carpenter. You just think about that for a second. The Son of God came to earth as a construction worker. What does that say about your work and how much God values it? What does that say about what we do day in and day out? See, Jesus shows us that all work is redeemable. 
And that's what, why he came, to redeem God's good creation. And as he does that work, it leads him to the cross. And on the cross, he pays the price for your sin and mine and for the whole world. And so now, those of us who trust in him, God looks at us and says, you're the people I'm pleased with. I'm pleased with what you're doing. But the news gets even better. And Jesus, while he dies on the cross, doesn't stay dead. But he rises again three days later to new, to new life. That Easter morning happens. And that actually means something. It means something for our work. And this is what it means. Jesus can be present on Monday morning because Jesus was present on Easter morning. Okay? Jesus is present on Monday morning for each of you because Jesus is present on Easter morning. Because we recognize, this is the Easter season, we're post-Easter here, we recognize that God cares so much for his creation, for the world, that he came down to redeem it, to reclaim it, and that on Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose again, he launched the new creation, this work that God is doing to redeem and restore all things back to himself. And so Jesus' resurrection means that you, his follower can actually take part in that work, that you become a signpost pointing back to his resurrection through what you do day in and day out. Amen. Through the work that God's given you, you get to be a signpost of the resurrection, that God hasn't given up on his creation. And so that's going to look differently for each of you. Uh, so let me just give you an example of how it looks for, for one family in our, our congregation. Uh, so so we've got a family in our congregation. They're a young family. They have two little kids, and uh, the husband in this family, he, he works in the tech industry, and, uh, and he works really hard uh, to provide for his family, to take care of their needs, day in, day out, doing his thing so that his, his, his family's taken care of. And the wife in this family has a, has a deep heart for children. She cares for them, loves them, and so in addition to raising her own kids, uh, spends much of her time caring for the kids of other people. And if they were just doing that, that's good, man. That's awesome. That's, that's God's plan for work. That's fulfilling their vocation. Way to go. But perhaps consciously, subconsciously, they're living into another story. They're living into the Easter story because recently this happened. It was like a week ago. Uh, through Facebook, they, they found out about uh, a young mother in our area uh, who was in a really difficult situation. She's a single mom, has two kids, was in a difficult situation, and they needed a safe place to stay uh, for a few weeks while this mom got back on her feet. And so this young family opened the doors of their house wide open to this lady that they met through Facebook. That's it. Brought her in. And so because the, the husband in this family goes to work to provide for his family, there's food for these, these other people. And because the wife in this family cares so much for kids, she's able to help uh, support this mom while she goes out and finds work and she takes care of the kids. And so I think about this story and I think like, who knows if his job's going to be here tomorrow? Right? And who knows if every kid that this wife cares for is, is going to turn out okay? Who knows? We can't control that. But right now, their work matters because they're living into God's story. Right now, they can be signposts of the resurrection that God hasn't given up on his creation. And that's my prayer for each of you that you'd see because of Jesus' work for you on the cross and in the empty tomb, that God looks at you and is pleased. And in light of that truth, you would find meaning 
and purpose and joy in your work. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for everything you give us. For friends, family, food, drink, and for our work, Lord. And Lord, sometimes there's problems in our work and that's all we can see. And sometimes it's distracting us from you and the things that we should value. But God, we know it's made to be a good thing. And so help us to find meaning in it. Help us to engage it properly. But mostly, Lord, teach us to see that no matter what, you are pleased with us because of Jesus' work on our behalf. That no matter what, we are loved and valued by you because of the cross and empty tomb. May that shape all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.